0: This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rolheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FrancisFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello, and welcome to the Francis Effect podcast. We are in the midst of season seven. My name is David Dalton. and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I also teach at Loyola University's Institute of Pastoral Studies, and I'm here with my friend Dan Horan. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and I'm here with my friend Dan Horan. He's the Duns Scotus Chair of Spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago, and he's a columnist at National Catholic Reporter. Hello, Dan. Good to see you. Good to see you, David. And I'm also here with Heidi Schlumpf. She's executive editor of National Catholic Reporter. Heidi, welcome as well.
1: Good to be back.
0: Well, I know that when this episode drops, we are going to be on the eve of the vice presidential debate, but I'll be honest with you, I am still reeling in some ways from the presidential debate, or maybe I should say non-debate. It's really difficult to think about a less stellar moment in American politics. I'm sure that there have been, but this was a difficult one to watch, but I'm wondering what you all thought.
1: Well, all I know is I had a bad stomachache by the time it was over, and I stuck it out to the end, even though it was hard to understand or even hear what anyone was saying, given the talking over and the interrupting. My kids came downstairs for a minute to watch it, and I wasn't even sure if it was good for them to be watching this really embarrassing example of lack of leadership on the part, mostly of the president. I got to give Joe Biden credit for not taking the bait for the most part. You know, I've read some analyses about how difficult it is for people who stutter to be constantly interrupted, especially when they're trying to get a hold of their language. So I know he told the president to shut up at one point, which we don't say in our house. But but in general, I thought he, he did a pretty decent job. And most polls say that he won. I'm really looking forward to the VP debate.
2: Yeah, I agree. I had a very hard time going to sleep that night, in part because I was you know, unwittingly kind of filled with adrenaline. I, it was just so anxiety inducing for me. And it's interesting, I was folding laundry at the beginning of the debate. And once Chris Wallace, you know, came on air and, and sort of introduced the rules and everything, I had kind of chills because I thought, oh, this is something, you know, every four years, the first debate comes around. This is This is the kind of final stretch of the political season. The election is around the corner. It's really happening was kind of my initial thought. So I was kind of Excited, nervous to see how things followed. And then, yeah, within a few minutes, once you know President Trump just basically threw all sorts of respect and procedure and human decency right out the window, I just, like I think most people, regardless of what side of the aisle they affiliate with, just horrified by what has been described as unpresidential. But I think it's worse than that. I mean, it's un esque I mean, children do not, we don't tolerate that kind of behavior among children. And to see, for instance, the moderator, Chris Wallace, who is a formidable interviewer and journalist and a commensurate professional, I kept watching, his left hand was shaking the whole time he was speaking, even before things really went off the rails. And then he lost his cool, as it were. But quite frankly, I kept thinking about My mother and my brother and my friends who all teach elementary school and secondary school. I come from a family of teachers, and it just was bringing back the way that Donald Trump was behaving and attacking, as it were, the moderator who in this setup seemed to me like the teacher or the parent figure, and his opponent, his debate opponent, who was his classmate in this kind of setup, or or at least somebody he should be cordial to, just was panicking me because I'm like what do you do with somebody who's so hostile so immature
0: this was the reaction that I had as well Uh, we've noticed something with my son who's nine years old whenever there's a really fraught emotional moment in a television program or a movie he'll get up and he'll start to walk around and he'll get this kind of nervous thing where he where he can't sit still and he has to kind of get up and and kind of Kind of move around. And what I noticed myself doing when we had the debate on in our room and we had the laptop open, I found myself doing exactly what my son does. I get up, I got up and I began to walk around and I had to leave the room and I would come back. And I managed to keep my cool through most of it, except for the point where Trump said that basically Obama and Biden had the chance to appoint 300 judges and they left them on the table for Trump and Trump thanked him. And I I shouted profanity at the screen at that moment because this was was McConnell and the Republicans who had blocked that. It was not simply a matter of the lack of decorum, which you've pointed out, but also the fact that, well, the fact that facts were really not present in in a lot of at least one side of the debate. And so if this is the example of what we are doing in our democracy right now, we are in deep trouble, (laughs) as we have said at times before here on the program. So I think that maybe we should turn to maybe a hopeful sign as well. and, And just to alert listeners that if they're not aware of it, a new encyclical is due to be coming out between the time that we record this and the time that this episode is released. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what to expect if we know anything about this yet.
2: Well we do uh we know some things most controversially we know the proposed title of the document which is Fratelli Tutti, an Italian, or all brothers, it's controversial because of its presumptive gender exclusivity, right? It's a it's a, it's a male construction, much like in, like in English, there's been an old convention that has been male-focused that presumes inclusivity, quote-unquote, you know, man and mankind as a stand-in for all humanity and men and women. And so some people, especially officials from the Vatican and sort of those who are defending the choice of this Italian title— have suggested, well, it's implied, right? Women are implied in this, that it's really all brothers and sisters. There's more to say about the controversy itself and the kind of incoherence of the defense of the title. And as a Franciscan scholar, it's something I've kind of waded into because the presumption here, again, based on the information we have in advance, is that Pope Francis is—the title for this encyclical comes from an admonition, a small kind of homily that St. Francis delivered to his friar brothers in the 13th century. But apart from that, I mean, the— it's, it's exciting, the topic of the encyclical, and that is this idea of human solidarity, the need for relationship, peacemaking, reconciliation. I think there are going to be some critiques of the economic system, the global economic system as we see it. There's probably going to be building on what was in Pope Francis's last encyclical, La si which is a re-emphasis of the the fact that all things are in creation are connected. So the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor are inextricably intertwined. And so I think there's a lot of really positive things we can expect in this document that are in keeping with Pope Francis's vision, pastoral vision, theological vision. I'm Interested to see what happens in terms of whether or not this title, especially as it goes untranslated in modern languages, whether that's going to distract from the good that could be in the document. I mean, Heidi, what do you think about this?
1: Well, I mean, I would say not only the title, but just the timing of it. Now, obviously, it's timed to be released on the feast day of St. Francis, and happy feast day to you in advance there, uh, Dan. Thank you. But I guess I would say there's just so much else going on that I just wonder if it'll break through in terms of having much of an impact. But that said, over at NCR Online, we'll be doing lots of coverage. Our Vatican correspondent will be covering the release. We'll have lots of reaction. We have some reactions already lined up of folks who plan to read it very quickly and give reaction, including you, Dan, right?
2: That's right. Yeah. Wouldn't it miss it.
1: <laughs>
0: well, as we look forward to these things coming up in the next few weeks, we've also got a lot of stuff to talk about today. We're going to be talking about the issues around the Supreme Court. We're going to be talking about the New York Times article about Donald Trump and his taxes. And we're going to be talking about a situation with Father Tony Flannery in Ireland. We're getting to all that in just a moment. But right now, we're going to take a break, and you're here with the Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Horan and Heidi Schlumpf. When Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died on September 18th, she was hailed as a champion of justice and a feminist and cultural icon. Less than 72 hours after her death, President Donald Trump offered Amy Coney Barrett the nomination to the court, even as many are still debating whether it was appropriate for the nomination to go forward just weeks before the election. By the time Trump made Barrett's nomination public, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was sure he had the votes to confirm her, even though two GOP senators, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Susan Collins of Maine, said they opposed moving forward with confirmation hearings. Murkowski has since suggested that she may still vote for the nominee. Of course, in 2016, some nine months before the election, Republicans, led by McConnell, refused to allow a hearing on President Barack Obama's Supreme Court nominee, Merrick Garland. Be that as it may, hearings for Barrett are scheduled to begin October 12th, three weeks and one day before Election Day. Barrett is a judge for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit a professor at the University of Notre Dame Law School, and she is a Catholic. In 2018, when her name was under consideration after Justice Anthony Kennedy retired, Barrett's membership in a, quote, covenanted community called the People of Praise came under scrutiny in the media. Heidi, you've done some reporting on the People of Praise. What can you tell us about this group, and is it appropriate for senators to ask her about it during the hearings, or would that be, as some allege, an anti-Catholic move?
1: Well, yes, of course, we're hearing a lot of charges of anti-Catholicism, even as in the run-up to the preparations for the hearings. I guess I would just point out that even before Barrett's confirmation, we have five justices on the U.S. Supreme Court, if you include Gorsuch, who grew up Catholic, but I believe attends an Episcopal church now, who are Catholic. Only one, Sonia Sotomayor, who has been named by a Democratic president. So what we're looking at is what kind of Catholics do we have on the court, and the answer is we have very conservative Catholics and not just conservative in their judicial outlook in terms of being committed to originalism. So back in 2018, I did do some reporting about the people of praise. A covenanted community are these communities that arose out of the charismatic movement, which goes back to the 60s and 70s in the Catholic Church. And of course, charismatic Catholics or charismatic Protestants, Pentecostals, believe in a direct experience with the Holy Spirit. Spirit that often results in gifts such as speaking in tongues or prophecy or healing. Now, not all charismatic Catholics belong to these covenanted communities, though. And in these covenanted communities, such as the people of praise, the members make a commitment to one another to sort of live in community, whether it is single people living together in the same household or families buying homes in the same neighborhood to live near one another. And they also tithe a certain percentage of their income to the community to support one another. So I'm just going to have a caveat here that I think that's a great thing, to practice your religious faith and to find like-minded people that you want to practice your faith with. The reason it's raising some concerns, this covenanted community, as well as some others that you may have heard of, some of the names of them, Word of God, Sword of the Spirit, Lord's Ranch, Uh, NCR has done some reporting on some of these groups in the past, is because there are allegations primarily from ex-members who've left these communities that they have some similar aspects to cults. So I'm not calling people of praise a cult. I'm just saying that some of the people who have left have alleged a level of authoritarianism also a level of secrecy, and some concerns specifically about issues around gender. So there's this idea of headship. Um, people who are members of People of Praise have a spiritual advisor they call a head. And previously, a female head was called a handmaid, which caused a lot of misinformation about this group being connected in some way, to Margaret Atwood's novel and the subsequent series, The Handmaid's Tale, which it is not. But anyway, the point is for a married woman, her head is her husband. And so he counsels her in most of her spiritual and other life decisions. So we have groups in within evangelical Protestantism that also believe in this headship sort of way of setting up families and looking at gender roles. But a number of people have concerns about that, especially since as a Supreme Court judge, she would be making a lot of rulings on issues that do affect women in the United States. So what do you guys think?
0: Well, one thing that I'm curious about, Heidi, is when I hear about this kind of intentional community, this covenanted community, I mean, it sounds in some ways similar to the kind of community that you live in, Dan. And I'm wondering if this is a fair parallel or if there's a significant difference we should see between a a community like people of praise and someone like the Franciscans or the Dominicans.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. The similarities kind of exhaust around the Christian identity, a commitment to living the gospel in a deliberate or intentional way. And so in that regard, there's certainly a shared similarity. This particular group, People of Praise, is an ecumenical charismatic organization, so it's not exclusively Catholic. It has no formal ties to the Roman Catholic Church, and therefore the Bishop of South Bend, Indiana, or anywhere else for that matter, has no jurisdiction over this lay association. But honestly, the big difference between, let's say, a third-order secular, a secular Franciscan, or a secular Dominican community of lay people, or, for example, oblates or, you know, associates of women's religious communities or monastic communities, for instance, is 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 notable because these groups distinguish themselves by having promises or covenants or vows that are by and large secret. They're private and not known to the public. By contrast and by definition, religious life in the formal sense in the Catholic tradition is a public vow, just like marriage, right? The Catholic Church does not recognize clandestine marriages. You can't go and secretly marry somebody. There has to be a public witness, and for the kind of sacramental convalidation, we say in the church, you know, it's witnessed by a minister in the church, for example. So it's a public it's a public celebration. The same thing is true with religious life, consecrated religious life in, in the Roman tradition, whether you're a religious sister, or a cloistered nun or monk, or a Franciscan friar like myself. All of our vows are public. People know what that Means it's done before, you know, there, there's no secrecy to it whatsoever. And I think that's the thing that really raises yellow and maybe red flags for people, not Catholicism as such, because there are plenty of Catholic organizations, including those of a charismatic sort, that have a particular worship style and theology and spirituality focused on the Holy Spirit in a distinctive way, that are more public, that are more transparent. I think the thing that cautions people, that concerns people, isn't Judge Barrett's Catholicism, but about what relationship and what obligations and what commitments she's made behind closed doors, privately, secretly, and and what conflicts of interest that might arise from that.
0: Well, and this raises, I think, the key point, and you began to touch on this, Heidi, but it's worth delving into, a lot of hay has been made the last few days about this kind of anti-Catholic bias in the reporting, but... We have to remember that there's a, more than a decade of a kind of theological, political melding in Washington called Dominionist or Seven Mountains Theology. And what this does is that these are various organizations that are trying to work with legislators to create theocratic outcomes in legislation, to try and meld certain types of very conservative theologies with very draconian Laws, And so I think we need to be careful when we talk about the Catholicism as an aspect of the complaint. It's exactly what you both are saying and what I'm hearing, the the notion that there will be a very particular type of Catholicism, a very conservative type of Catholicism that has very particular ideas about complementarity between men and women and other sorts of things about women's bodies being melded with a powerful vehicle for interpreting legislation.
2: I think that's right, but I but even we have to be careful about the language we use and how we're describing it. So even you, David, a, a brilliant theologian and guy on top of things, we're slipping into making references to her Catholicism yet again, or a kind of Catholicism. This group is not a Catholic group. It's composed of people, uh, you know, one estimate in the reporting suggests that as much as 90% of the population of this group identifies as Catholic, but it has no formal Catholic ties. This is not a congregation, it's not a secular institute that's recognized by the church. And so, you know, this is where it gets tricky. She is a Catholic, she's a practicing Catholic, who also affiliates with an ecumenical group that she brings her Catholicism, her her interpretation of Catholicism, her lived experience of Catholicism to, but we don't know anything about it, quite frankly, and there's no official tie to Catholicism. So it's not really Catholicism on trial here. It's, as I see it, it's a red herring to talk about anti-Catholicism, which I think is the deliberate spin of those who are trying to shield her from tough questions, whether about this group or about her jurisprudence.
1: And Dan, I think this puts the Democrats in the Senate in a very precarious position because it is being pitched or slanted as anti-Catholicism if they ask about this organization. So when Barrett was being confirmed for her current position uh, back in 2017, she did not even disclose her membership or involvement with this group. And so she was not able to be asked about it back then. So if they ask about it now, however, and i'm not sure i know she just released hundreds of pages in her initial questionnaire i'm not sure if she disclosed it there if they ask about it now they risk there's a political risk in terms of the democratic party who has made some inroads for the presidential election in terms of attracting some moderate religious voters away from Trump, including some white Catholics. So, you know, interestingly, a lot is also being made of the fact that Barrett co-wrote a Law Review article when she was quite young in her career that argued that Catholic judges should recuse themselves in cases involving the death penalty. And she was pointing out, she and her co-author were pointing out that as Catholics, they believe in church teaching about the death penalty, which is that it's currently inadmissible. So I guess the question then that's obviously raised is does she still believe that and would it apply to other issues besides the death penalty, such as abortion or other issues that are part of Catholic teaching? But I do think it's very dangerous to start asking about this, because the spin will hurt, I'm afraid, the Democrats. And they have the votes for Barrett to be confirmed. So I'm not sure what difference that would make. And a lot of people are warning the Democrats to be careful.
2: Yeah, I think it's a fair warning. I had an interesting conversation with a Muslim colleague of mine who teaches theology as a specialist, particularly in in Islamic law. And so he's very interested at this intersection. He was asking me lots of questions about the role of Catholicism, the role of this group, because he was viewing this whole controversy, this public controversy about her religiosity and record of jurisprudence and her scholarship and whatnot from the lens of what if this were a Muslim judge who was being nominated to the Supreme Court? You know, What kind of questioning would that arise and and how does one's affiliation with groups that are not sanctioned by the mainstream religious tradition, and we can think of all sorts of examples, nevertheless, you know, how is that portraying the religious tradition itself? So, you know, does Barrett's personal perhaps extreme in some from some vantage points, views about family life, about identity, about ethics, and what have you, that are not necessarily, because again, it's, it's secret, by and large, maybe not reflective of the church's official teaching, what is that? how does that kind of redound to Catholicism? And I think you're right to say that it puts Democrats, and, and I would say, I would hope some Republicans who should also be concerned about what kind of influences, what sort of personal obligations or conflicts do people bring to the highest judicial office in the land? And this is where I don't think one has to bring up religion as such to get to some of the more pressing potential conflicts. And it's about what does the person... Particularly believe what does this person actually say? And I think Heidi, your example of that law review article, which was co-authored, interestingly enough, here's a little a tidbit by John Garvey, who's the current president of Catholic University of America, former uh, law school dean, that you could ask questions that relate to the public record or to previous rulings that she's participated in, and some of those are quite scandalous, to be be frank, you know, in the circuit district that she's a federal judge in in the midwest here there have been some really rather egregious oversteps where she has tried to interfere and I don't think that's an exaggeration in decisions that were made you know the way that circuit courts work is that judges at random are assigned in 3 judge panels to hear cases, right, in, in the appellate process, and she was not assigned to that three-judge panel. She was not part of a particular case, at least in two instances, and yet tried to interfere in various ways, and I, we don't have time to get into all the details, but that's troubling on, on its face, regardless of what her religious tradition is.
1: I also read an interesting article about how uh, she apparently has been groomed since she was young to be this rising star on the Catholic right in terms of judicial appointments and eventually to the Supreme Court, while that's all fair, I guess, it's concerning for a couple reasons. And I'm not a legal scholar, so I can't speak to some of her decisions. And I do believe that a person's faith should inform everything they do in their life, including their job, even if they're a judge. That said, I worry about the picture that's being painted of Catholicism in the public eye. If someone like Amy Coney Barrett, who, you know, that's great that she's adopted kids, it's great that she has a large family, it's great that she's had a successful career. Just as an aside, the irony of a allegedly patriarchal group, the people of praise, resulting in a woman who has the potential to have such a very important job. Maybe shows that it isn't so patriarchal after all or that the patriarchy wants her to be on the court. I'm not sure. But I just worry that if we only see very conservative Catholics in the public eye, that it further portrays the Catholic Church as not being a place for people with different views.
2: And I think that something I've seen on on social media that people have highlighted too, is that everyone, when the announcement came out, everyone who was in favor of Barrett's approval and and appointment to the bench started lauding, oh, it'd be great to have a Catholic woman on the Supreme Court, a Catholic woman. And people pointed out, we have a Latina Catholic woman named uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor. And so it's like, you know, this is your point exactly, Heidi, that the perception is that Catholicism is a certain kind of ideological commitment or disposition. And actually, we're an incredibly large tent of more than a billion people with various political affiliations. So
0: it's clear that there's going to be more that we're going to need to say and think about as this moves forward. And (laughs) things are moving forward very quickly, so we may be talking about it soon. But for now, let's go ahead and leave the conversation and move on to our next topic. You're listening to The Francis. Effect. We'll be back in just a moment.
2: Welcome back to the Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dahl. Every couple of weeks we get together to talk about current events and politics through a lens informed by our shared Catholic faith. For more than three years, President Trump and the White House have actively resisted the disclosure of any information about the president's finances through the release of his tax returns. But that strong wall of defense has cracked some over the past couple of weeks, with revelations coming in a bombshell investigation by the New York Times, which in the end was able to access more than two decades worth of information about Donald Trump's business dealings. The main takeaway, as reported by the Times, reveals, quote, struggling properties, Vast write-offs, an audit battle, and hundreds of millions in debt coming due, end quote. More than this, the Times also uncovered that a number of those vast write-offs involved double-paying members of his family who were already his employees as undisclosed consultants. Those close to the president and the president himself have defended these practices, claiming that this is just what business people do. Others, however, have raised serious concerns, in particular regarding the nearly half a billion dollars in loans that are set to come due during President Trump's next term, loans that he personally guaranteed himself, assuming, of course, a next term if he were reelected. There's a lot to dig into here, David. Where on earth do we start? Well, I
0: want to get to the question of those loans, but on the way, I want to start with the notion that somehow this is simply what good business people do, that they utilize every single opportunity to exploit loopholes, to pay as little taxes as possible, or to maximize somehow their losses so that their profits are minimized on paper. There's more to it than simply that aspect of, I'm, I'm doing what a good business person does. There are allegations in the New York Times reporting that in one moment, the Trump companies were overstating losses in order to minimize profit. But then when they were turning around to try and secure loans, they were inflating actually the value of various properties and assets in order to to make sure that their loans had the best possible percentage rates and things like that. There's a technical word for this kind of practice in the business world. It's called fraud. (laughs) I
2: think I've heard of that.
0: that's, That's important to note is, yes, business people do try and maximize their profits and minimize their exposure. They do try and minimize their tax burden. All of this is something that business people do. That statement is correct. However, the means and the methods by which the Trump organizations were doing this were possibly beyond the pale. Now, there's still a lot more for us to be digging into, but I'd love just to, as a way of starting the conversation to hear what you two are thinking about as you were reading and hearing about these New York Times reportings.
2: Well, I'll just start with what I tweeted. You know, I was I was working in the office when the news broke and I had to stop everything and I thought, of course, in the in the middle of a project that I was deeply engrossed in, the New York Times has kind of historic breaking news that I that I have to read. And one of the things I tweeted early on was, I, I think the three-person reporting investigative team basically won a Pulitzer Prize just from their lead. And the, and the lead said, and this is the thing I think that's most sort of ingrained in people's minds. The lead said basically over the, the, the year of Trump's election and then his first year in office, each year he paid a total of $750 in personal income taxes, federal income taxes, which is staggering staggering that is it's so insulting i mean the even the lowest Taxable income bracket is paying roughly the same amount. I mean, it's just unbelievable to think of somebody who who has positioned himself as this successful millionaire, billionaire, and so forth. And David, I like your point about fraud. You know, this very technical term in the business world and in the legal world, because that's exactly what this is. He is a figurative fraud, and he is literally a fraud in this case, committing. You know, what seemed to be, at least by the reporting, some very egregious violations of of tax law. I'll just say this. He, his response, his defense has been, well, I'm smart. This is what business people do, as you say. But you know, that would be like saying, you know you know the golden state killer who who murdered people for decades and went uncaught until nearly the end of his life in his in into his 70s was very smart because he wasn't caught or to say that Martha Stewart who was a you know arrested for insider trading and spent time actually in jail was very smart because she was just doing these things it's it's all crime you know it's not smart it's criminal
1: well i think that it is yet to be proved whether what he did is illegal and i think you know we'll have to kind of wait and see a little bit more the times has not released the actual documents because they're afraid of revealing their sources my first reaction was first of all what a hell of a great journalism this was and how lucky we are to still have the First Amendment, at least still now, (laughs) where journalists can do this level of digging and work. And I can tell you the very small examples of investigative stuff that I've done, how much work it is to dig into especially financial and that kind of data. So we're very lucky that we have this information. And where we go from now will be interesting to see, because the short attention spans of people moving on to the next tragedy or news or whatever. Um, We had Trump at the debate basically deny and said he pays millions of federal income taxes, which if the documents are released, will will show that's not true. The comparison of the $750, I thought, of course, we all think about what our own taxes and what we might pay. But I think the real comparison, in addition to what other presidents have paid, which is, much more substantial, is to what a small business might pay. So if this is just what businesses do, why are small businesses paying so much more in taxes, especially those small businesses that are struggling right now because of coronavirus and the way that's been mishandled? So I am interested in the issues of national security and issues around the election. So if you've wondered Why does Trump want to be president so badly? And given how much he doesn't seem to enjoy it the past three and a half years, why does he want to do it for another four years? It's hard to not speculate that something about all these business losses and these loans coming due might have something to do with it.
2: I think that's important. And then, Heidi, you, you were right to, it's such a great journalist response, you know, allegedly, allegedly criminal activity, you know, it hasn't been proven. And so I, I you know, revise my statement. But but I think, you know, in kind of plain talk, common sense, sort of parlance, this, this is criminal, or at least unethical, you know, it's behavior that that is not what good business people do, and your point just now is is spot on because you know at the very least Trump will be personally liable for more than three hundred million dollars of guaranteed loans that he has to repay, and that it's, it seems evident from the Times's you know very thorough reporting he does not have that kind of capital, at least not the kind of liquidity at hand to to pay that. So he might be able to sell some assets if he's able to sell them, and that kind of bankruptcy proceedings, you know, he's not going to get top rate. you know. He, he's basically facing two things is what I see. And this speaks to your point about the kind of political liability. One is he's going to leave office. He already is incredibly in debt, but he's, he's potentially leaving office, going to the poor line, to the bread line, like he is going to have nothing. And then second, he's facing criminal investigation, at least in New York state. So we're, we're focusing on federal income taxes, but he's right now under investigation in the state of New York for potential criminal activity related to his businesses. You know, another thing that's worth noting as well is that, you know, you, you brought up, I thought, interestingly the $750 when we think about small businesses but here's the thing this is his personal income tax reporting and i think that's part of the alleged criminality or the is certainly the unethical use of the tax reporting or tax filing i should say which is that he's writing off what would otherwise be isolated business expenses as personal sort of losses or expenses which I'm no CPA, but I don't think you can do that. Well, one doesn't have to be a CPA to be
0: able to understand that for a politician, particularly one with as much influence and visibility as the President of the United States, failing to put your assets in a blind trust, allowing yourself to still be involved in commerce, this puts you into a type of personal exposure that the founders were worried could be exploited. And this is why things like the Emoluments Clause exist, and there's been a lot of ink spilled about what exactly the the emoluments clause means. But basically, if you can find leverage against a president, if you can find personal leverage against a president, either by doing them the benefit of giving them gifts or by doing them the harm of being able to hold them accountable for half a billion dollars worth of loans coming due, the question in in the mind of the public should be, can this be exploited in order to make the president move in a certain direction or not move in a certain direction, according to interests that are not connected to the public interest. And this is not simply a political question for Americans. This is a Catholic question because this speaks right to the heart of the President's ability to uphold the common good. And I'd love to hear, now that we're, we're sort of in swimming in these waters, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the ways in which we can, as citizens and as Catholic citizens, be trying to maneuver our government more towards the common good in a situation like this where, the, where we now know that the President is exposed for a huge amount of money and personal liability in the years to come.
1: Yeah, uh, David, I do think this raises a number of moral issues for Catholics and for Christians more broadly, and all religious people. How much do we owe to the common good? Not just in our caring in a in a collective way, but in our own personal payment towards things that are you know the the pot that is used then for things for society. I, quote my great grandmother here who said she gladly paid her taxes because she saw that as contributing to things that benefited her and the people around her whether that was roads or schools or bridges I think this idea that somehow the government is out to get us and we have to squeeze every penny that we might otherwise give to the government to use for some of these things is not a Catholic viewpoint. And I have a, I dug up this quote from Pope Francis that he made earlier this year at a meeting of the International Monetary Fund where he specifically was talking about taxes on the top, you know, income earners. He said, Quote, structures of sin today include repeated tax cuts for the richest people, often justified in the name of investment and development, tax havens for private and corporate profits, and the possibility of corruption by some of the largest companies in the world, often in tune with some dominant political sector. Wow.
2: Yeah, I think Pope Francis hits the uh, hits the ball out of the park there. You know, and, and I'm... On the one hand, I feel like the motto of twenty twenty is the expression that's that's maybe cliched at this point. I use it a lot myself. I think I just did it in my column this week too, which is you know things are you know shocking but not surprising and I think this is an instance of that and and one of the sources that leads me to think about this is Mary Trump, her book from the summer Mary Trump is donald trump's niece and and one of the things that she presents anecdotally from her own experience and through conversations with other family members and public records, is that the Trump family, beginning with Fred Trump, Donald Trump's father, viewed money as the only currency, pun intended. It was the only measurement of love, it was the only measurement of success, it was the only measurement of value and worth and dignity. And so even the way that money was used to belittle and manipulate other family members is striking and it, and again it seems to be something that was deeply ingrained in in Donald Trump's own psyche he the the allegations of him paying Ivanka Trump as an unreported consultant on top of the fact she was already receiving a very high salary as an employee of the Trump organizations is actually something that comes right out of the playbook of his father and how Fred Trump shielded lots and lots of money, assets from federal taxes by naming his children unwittingly and grandchildren in some instances as owners in some of these corporations or some of these kind of shell companies. I'm also reminded of another source of late that that helps you know bring us back to what you've said, David, and, and Heidi as well about what are the implications. Some people might look at this and say, well, so what? Who cares? and there's some really powerful quotes in Bob Woodward's new book Rage about the kind of second half of the Trump presidency in which he interviews former Director of National Intelligence and former Senator Dan Coats who is no bleeding liberal in fact one of his best friends is Mike Pence of Indiana they were both you know in government in Indiana and Dan Coats over and over and over again during his his term, during his tenure as the Director of National Intelligence, which oversees all dozen plus intelligence agencies of the federal government, was deeply, deeply troubled by Donald Trump's sycophancy with regard to people like Vladimir Putin, President Xi of China, and some other strong leaders who clearly are have access to knowledge, uh, to information, to intelligence that probably, you know, they have known for a long time the kind of charade that Trump has been trying to pull off and that that subjected the current president of the United States to blackmail.
0: I think as a way of kind of bringing this to a close just at the moment from a Catholic perspective, I I go back to the Catechism, and I'm thinking about paragraph 2240. Submission to authority and co-responsibility for the common good make it morally obligatory to pay taxes, to exercise the right to vote, and to defend one's country. Pay to all of them their dues, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. In so many cases, we could look at this as a litmus test for the way that President Trump should be behaving. And we find that not only has he failed to pay his taxes, he's failed to respect those to whom he should be offering respect. And he's failing to honor those to whom he should be showing honor not from a political standpoint, but from a Catholic standpoint, I feel like there's a lot that we can say, and there are a lot of resources in the Catholic tradition that we can use in this moment to begin to speak to the practices that we're seeing, both on the pages of a tax return, but also on the stage of a debate or in the public forum. There's going to be a lot more for us to say about this, but for right now, we should probably bring this conversation to a close. This is The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment.
1: Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple weeks, Dan, David, and I get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. In 2012, the Vatican suspended an Irish redemptorist priest named Father Tony Flannery from public ministry because of his support for women's ordination. The action directed by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, known by the acronym CDF, was in response to several articles written by Flannery in a Redemptorist-sponsored publication. Over the summer, the CDF sent a letter in response to Father Flannery's religious superior's request that he be allowed to return to public ministry. According to reporting published in NCR, the letter informed, quote, the Redemptorist leadership in Rome that Flannery should not return to public ministry if the priest does not sign the four attached oaths, end quote. These oaths asked Flannery, quote, to affirm the church's official positions on a male-only priesthood, gay relationships, civil unions, and gender identity. While Flannery acknowledged his disagreement with the current articulation of church teaching on some of these topics, he expressed puzzlement in response to the request he assert fidelity to the church's teaching regarding so-called gender ideology. According to the same article, Flannery had no idea what that subject was included. He said, quote, I don't think I've ever written a line on gender theory, said the priest, joking. I'd want to study up and know exactly what it was before I'd even begin to. Some commentators have observed that this sort of heavy-handed intervention of the CDF is reminiscent of earlier attitudes and practices of the Vatican office under previous popes and congregational prefects. Theologians have expressed concern that, as one article explained, quote, Flannery's treatment might signal that the powerful congregation for the doctrine of the faith is returning to its practice of tightly controlling the bounds of theological debate, which in previous decades led to the silencing of theologians and priests around the world, end quote. Additionally, this sort of intervention appears to some to be antithetical to Pope Francis's leadership style, which has encouraged greater dialogue and willingness to ask tough questions, as seen in recent synods of bishops. Dan, in the case of Father Flannery, it raises a lot of questions about theological dialogue, the role of dissent in the church, and the relationship between conscience and public statements, among other themes. What are we to make of this?
2: It's a good question, and it's an open question. I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. I I have lots of thoughts about the importance of dialogue, theological dialogue, asking difficult questions, and this reference to the sort of antithetical kind of feeling about the kind of hammer, as it were, being put down on somebody like uh, Father Flannery in an age where Pope Francis is encouraging his brother bishops and the those who have kind of advisory roles in these churchwide synods to speak freely, to to be courageous, to ask tough questions. So I think one of the things that that is troubling to me is there seems to be a contradiction in terms. One is, you know, an invitation to ask tough questions, but then on the other hand, there's this kind of policing of which which tough questions are acceptable. And so I, I feel like I'm very much in line with those who are uh, concerned that that there is a conflict here, that that there isn't consistency. I think it also raises a, a more fundamental question, which is, what is the purpose of theology? What I see here are two camps that are in competition or Locked against one another. And I think the late Jesuit theologian Bernard Lonergan, a Canadian theologian, kind of a big figure in in theological methodology of the 20th century, you know, he wrote this article many years ago called From a Classicist Mindset to Historical Consciousness. And he really is kind of laying out the vision of theology as practiced in the early church and since the Second Vatican Council. And the theology that was kind of presented after the Council of Trent in that reactive, defensive mode in the face of the, the Reformers' critiques. And the classicist mindset is this view that everything is static, that the faith can be reduced to propositional claims, that if all you do is memorize the catechism and you can regurgitate that, then you're doing theology. It's what led to the manual tradition for seminary formation, which is just a bunch of memorizing of propositional claims, as opposed to historical consciousness. Which in keeping with St. John Henry Newman, with St. Augustine back in the fourth century, with the basic facts of church history, is that doctrine develops, that there's no such thing as kind of uh, an abstract, remote, you know, static text that's handed down, that kind of descends from the heavens with, this is Catholic teaching, this is what we believe, it's unchanging, it doesn't go anywhere. So I, I think what makes me nervous and makes a lot of my theological colleagues nervous is an attitude that embraces a classicist mindset and cuts off conversation that says, theology is not about raising questions, it's not about faith seeking understanding, it's, there's no dynamism to it, it's just about rote memorization and fideism.
0: Well, this idea that doctrine develops raises, I think, an important question for us in this moment, because if Catholicism is a kind of set of universal teachings that are interpreted in localities with developed doctrine, what we seem to be observing is that there is an American Catholic interpretation, and there seems to be European Catholic interpretations, and they seem to be moving at different paces in different directions. Like, the American Catholic Church seems to be more and more locking down these questions and wanting to have these questions be unasked, and we see examples not only with Father Flannery, but also with German bishops who are pressing these questions, and are really wanting to say the Church in the 21st century must be addressing some of these deeper questions. What are we to make of this fracture between two different approaches to Catholicism in the
2: American context and in the European context, and what does that mean for the Church? Well, I I think we have to make a distinction, too, between those who are doing theology in service to the academy and to the Church, and those who have a pastoral leadership role who are primarily teachers, but not teachers— in a theological sense necessarily. And here I'm talking about bishops. Not all bishops are professional theologians. Some are. Some have advanced degrees in theology, but most have the same theological education that a parish priest does. They do not have any kind of special access to theological knowledge or historical studies or anything for that matter. And I'm not trying to denigrate the important role that bishops play. They play an incredibly important role in the church, but it's to say that there's a place in the church's tradition for theology and for theologians who are professionals. That's why the Second Vatican Council, that's why at the Council of Trent, that's why at Nicaea, going back, you know, 1700 years, it's not just bishops who show up and vote on documents and make things up. They have to bring, and they do bring with them, theological paridi, theological advisors in Latin. And that's to prevent exactly this reason. So I would say, David, that your point about in the American context, I think there are some very vocal bishops who have this classicist mindset, but I don't think that's representative of Catholic theology in the U.S.
1: Dan, I think we also saw this dichotomy about how theology is, and church teaching it, uh, should be considered. In the press conference, it was about an, another topic about the document coming out of the CDF about end-of-life issues, which was in and of itself also controversial. But our Vatican correspondent at NCR was at the press conference and asked a question specifically about the Flannery case. And Cardinal Ladaria, who's the head of the CDF, his response to Josh was that he had that the CDF had this duty to protect the faith. And this idea that the faith is something that needs to be protected by making these judgments and requiring these fidelity oaths. Um, I do think that that sends a conflicting message to everyday people who are hearing these kinds of things come out of the Vatican, who at the same time think that Pope Francis is this person who says at a synod, no no topics are off the table, let's be able to discuss. But I think one bit technicality is that it seems like Pope Francis's sort of MO is to leave things alone, except sometimes they, he can't, or his people can't when, when approached. So the fact that The leadership of the Redemptorists came to the CDF and said, hey, it's been eight years. We want a decision about this guy. Kind of forced their hands, I'm afraid.
0: What should lay people make of this? Because I will just say, walking back from Mass one day, my daughter, who is 11 now, looked up at me and said, Papa, I noticed that there's only male priests. And she began to have a conversation with me about that. So there is a desire amongst lay people to have these kind of conversations. I know that anecdotally just from my own family. And as you said, Heidi, when we see people like Cardinal Ladario basically saying, No, we must protect the faith, it's almost like the Cardinal is saying that the job is to protect the faith from the very asking of these questions, and so i 'm wondering then what we as lay persons are to make about this and i 'll ask i 'm asking both of you and recognizing that one of you is a priest
2: yeah, I mean, I think the obligations vary. The questions that lay people have are the questions that religious and ordained ministers in the church also have, and that professional theologians also have, and in my case, I occupy a couple of those identities. You know, the protection language is very, very troubling for a couple reasons. One is, and listeners to this podcast will know where I'm going with this already, which is, my question is, protection from what or from whom? If we're talking about truth with a capital T and we believe that the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, is the way, the truth, and the life, then I don't think Jesus or Jesus the Christ, the one we acknowledge as the Christ, needs protection from questions, you know? I also point to the lack of belief in the Holy Spirit, that people who whose immediate defense of, or defense of policing theological questions tend to be people who I think feel like everything is up to them, that the weight of the future of the church and of Christianity is on their shoulders. And that is a kind of arrogance. It may be rooted in a, in a place, you know, a well-meaning disposition, but it's reflective of hubris. Yeah, so you know, in a nutshell, I I just have to say that I think the idea that an individual human or collection of human beings who are fallible and finite and and imperfect as we all are, even if you're the cardinal prefect of the congregation of the for the doctrine of faith, is is misguided. And I think that one thing we've learned that ecclesiologists have taught us and that the church teaches in Lumen Gentium is that it's not just a top-down distribution of ideas that are, you know, static and inert, but rather there's the role of the spirit working through the church in the census fidelium and raising questions, the lived experience of faith, all these sorts of things that then get kind of absorbed into the leadership offices of the church that therefore promulgate these in a magisterial or official way.
1: Yeah, Dan, and I think we have to look at what the content of these four fidelity oaths were as well. So this wasn't about the, you know, humanity and divinity of Christ or the centrality of the Eucharist. This was about what we think of as culture war issues, you know, women's roles in the church, leadership in the church, you know, LGBT rights or gay marriage, and this uh, gender ideology uh, one, which I know you wrote a column about, Dan. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I have lots of thoughts about that last one in particular, and I appreciated Father Tony sort of joking about it in his interviews. Because A, he, he hasn't written about it. I actually have, not just in a popular sense in my column, but, but actually in a book, my most recent book on theological anthropology, particularly thinking about the understanding of the human person and the questions that are surfacing from social science, from lived experience, from psychology, from medicine, and from theology around the transgender question issue. And what's interesting about the so-called gender ideology is twofold in my eyes, that one... Like Father Tony admits, how can you take an oath about something for which the church has no ordinary or extraordinary magisterial teaching about. There is no formal teaching about gender ideology as it's presented or gender theory as it's sometimes described. And that includes the question of transgender persons. There are some pastoral guidances. There's some kind of educational instruction that came out, people might recall, two summers ago. But in terms of, you know, Heidi, you're spot on with this. You know, this isn't... Most times when the CDF intervenes, it's because somebody is talking about Christ in a way that is not in continuity with, you know, the tenets of Christian faith. This is something altogether different. The The issue of who's admitted to holy orders, I think, is still a touchy question, and some people have, in, in a defense of a male-only ministerial priesthood, will point to some of John Paul II's teaching on this front, where John Paul II effectively said, basically, the conversation's over. But that's not a irreformable teaching. It, does, it was not taught with the charism of infallibility. It is, from a theological perspective, still very much an open question. You know, One, for instance, cannot maintain the Catholic faith and publicly reject the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. That's infallibly taught. However, this question about who's admitted to orders, Pope Francis even has that on the table when it comes to the women women being admitted to the diaconate.
0: This brings me back to something that I I gestured towards earlier, but now I want to make a kind of concrete part of the conversation. So my daughter raised a question, but I also teach at... Uh, Loyal University's Institute of Pastoral Studies, and one of the things that my students are asking again and again is, you know, when they are working as directors of Christian education or when they are working as youth leaders, they see people in their congregations who are asking these questions. This is a matter not simply of defending the faith, and I'm scare quoting that, it's a matter of catechesis and it's a matter of the new evangelization. It's the way in which the church is articulating itself to a world that largely has turned its back on institutionalized faith in general. And I think that there's a question about the refusal to even bring up these questions or acknowledge them. And this is what you were saying about the fact that there's no formal teaching on this. There is no pronouncement to be defended. There is simply a level of conversations that are happening and the attempt to stifle certain conversations that I think young people in particular look at and they they want to turn their back on that because they say you're not relevant to the to the questions of our world or to the questions that are burning in my heart.
2: I, I think there's also an important distinction between raising questions, even hard questions, and public dissent. Public dissent is a very, very specific category according to canon law, and it has to be you know fully and understand completely what the magisterial teaching of the church is on a topic and you officially publicly formally reject that <laughs> that's different from private questioning or maybe we might call it private dissent that's protected by the church you are not outside of communion with the church if you are in your own way discerning this you know this comes up most regularly for most lay people around topics like birth control right humane vitae where paul vi ends that encyclical very controversial encyclical nevertheless with a pastoral bent acknowledging that that not all couples will be ready to accept this right away and talks about a pastoral accompaniment model for how pastors and other ministers help people Pray about this, reflect on this, strive with an open heart to incorporate that into their own faith experience and their own worldview, acknowledging that sometimes people can't always get there all the way. Now, doing that in the internal forum, in spiritual direction in private conversations and discussions among one another on a personal faith level, that's one thing. Publicly acknowledging what you understand what it means and rejecting it, that that does raise the stakes some. And that's but that only applies to things that are explicitly taught, you know, and 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 even then church doctrine varies in in a hierarchy of truth. Not all church teaching weighs the same.
1: Yeah, I guess this for me kind of circles back to where we started with talking about Amy Coney Barrett and what she represents as a certain type of Catholic with beliefs that may be more traditionalist, especially around many of these culture war issues. And again, if this becomes the face of Catholicism, both from the CDF and then from public officials who are Catholic and wear their Catholicism on their sleeves, I think that's problematic, not just for your daughter, David, but mine and and women of all ages.
0: And that may be a good place for us to leave this conversation for now. Thank you both so much for being part of this. And I'm looking forward to the next couple of weeks, even though getting to those, getting to the next episode may involve some trauma for all of us, as we've seen in the last few days. But thank you both, Father Dan and Heidi, for being here today. It's good
2: to be with you. Good to be with you, Heidi. Good to be with you, David. Always a pleasure.
0: The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We record the show at various locations around the Chicago area. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com francisfxpod Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you can also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod pod we appreciate it very much you can follow us on twitter and facebook at francisfx pod that's francis the letters f and x and the word pod likewise our website is francisfxpod.com and if you want to send us a question or comment you can always talk to frank by emailing franciseffectpod at gmail.com If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got six whole seasons worth of episodes on our website that you can go back and listen to. Dan, Heidi, and I will be back in two weeks. Thank you so much for listening.